Hello and welcome to Publish Me, a monthly podcast series from the AS21 Podcast Network as we explore the publishing process of the fantasy epic, The Will of the Magi. I'm your host, Keith F. Shuffin, publisher of AS21 Media, and joining me as always is... Hello everyone, this is Paul Dickinson Russell, the author of The Will of the Magi. Hope you're all doing well and hope you are staying warm today. And I'm Ron Gaynor, design consultant, aka cover artist for The Will of the Magi. Same as Paul. I hope you guys are staying warm, because Lord knows I'm trying. Yes, and we are joined this month by... Hey guys, uh, Barad Krishnan. Happy to be here. Author of the upcoming fantasy novel, Oasis. We're on an interesting recording schedule. We were trying to record on a Friday night, but unfortunately a windstorm came and pretty well walloped the D.C. area and all the way up the East Coast. So as of, we're now recording on a Sunday, Rana is still without power. I believe I might still be without power. I fled for the hills to, you know, in search of warmth. And Paul himself was out power until, what was it, this morning or yesterday, Paul? Till yesterday afternoon. I, I was without power for just over 24 hours. Yeah, so we're at uh, probably about 52 hours for in my house and run about the same, right? Yeah, we were without power from like 1 o'clock on Friday and it's still out. There's actually a tree like resting on the power lines right outside of my house right now. So BGE is out there right now doing something about that. But based on their updates, like we might not have power until tomorrow or midweek. Oh, wow. So Yeah, we got that wonderful banner yesterday saying full power will be restored by Tuesday evening. <laughs> Tuesday evening? <laughs> And of course, Rod, you're out in Louisiana. So I'm, in, I'm in sunny Louisiana, just just living it up. And of course, nothing bad ever happens in Louisiana, storm wise. So. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the March 2018 edition of the Publishing Podcast, Chapter 36, and we'll be discussing world building with guest Rod Krishnan and his, talking about his fantasy work Oasis and kind of conversation between him and Paul about their different backgrounds and what that brings into creating a fantasy world. But first, uh, we want to go ahead and do an update of what's been happening the past month. Now, I know Corey has finished reading the book and has already been sending you edits, right, Paul? I'm still waiting on the first round of things to look at, but he said he'd get to me in the next couple days. Uh, Before I forget, are you still talking to your mother after the surprise of her being the guest last (laughs) month? (laughs) Well, we are still talking. However, <laughs> she did just get back from a cruise uh, this morning. Um, and so she was on the high seas when the storm hit. 20-foot waves, 20-mile-per-hour winds. They had some fun. So there was a small part of me going, ha, 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 <laughs> suffer. Wow. Yeah, you I'm don't hold any ill will, do you? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a calm, forgiving, forgetting type of person. No, not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so there is something that's happened this month that I know, Paul, you brought up on your Facebook page, and I was just following up on doing the news list for literally this week, and we wanted to get Rana's thought on it, so... So I have here a story from Bleeding Cool. Author Terry Goodkind found himself in a self-inflicted controversy of the bad kind 
Last Saturday, after making several Facebook posts mocking and denigrating the cover of his own book, Shroud of Eternity, he wrote on Facebook on uh, Friday, was it February yeah, 23rd, yep. Shroud of Eternity is a great book with a very bad cover, laughably bad, so let's have some fun with it. And he had his fans encourage them to mock the cover in a contest in which 10 random entries would be chosen to receive a free copy of the book. Ah, there's so many oh, things wrong with this. All right, Rana, your first thoughts. <laughs> Feel free to use bad language. Okay. We can believe you. Okay, so when an author and a publisher get together and are deciding on a cover for a book, my impression is that, you know, the author has a say in the cover. Yeah. So. Especially if you're Terry Goodkind. <laughs> Especially if you're Terry Goodkind. So, like, how did it get this far where Terry Goodkind chose the artist for the book cover and let it get made and let it get finished and let it get published and is now saying, oh, this sucks, I hate it. Like, how did that happen? Why did he not you know, say something earlier. He's just, like, Terry Goodkind is reacting like a small child right now. It's just very frustrating. And, like, the good thing about this is that most, 99% of the comments that I saw on the Facebook post when it came across my feed were all in complete support of the artist. Like, hey, who's the artist's name? This is his name. This is web his website. Go support the artist. Yep. Which was, I think, really good. Yeah, the artist was identified. It wasn't the artist was not listed on the, the company's website or any of the things reflect you know connecting to the book, but people were able to figure it out. It's Bastien Lecouf de Harm. Now Lecouf de Harm is a successful and well regarded artist whose work you read familiar with from the Magic the Gathering series. Eventually <laughs> Lecouf de Harm responded on Goodkind's original post, saying it was nice working with you, Terry. What you are doing is totally disrespectful, as if I didn't create those covers according to exactly what I was told to do in my entire career. I have never seen an author behaving like this. He also thanked commenters for their support. What a weird surprise to discover this type of behavior on Facebook today. What would push an author to do something like that? Low sales? Frustration? To which, so then on Saturday, you had the response from GoTime. I'm reading some of the comments being shared, and I want to clarify a few things. The contest and poll below is poking fun at my own book. Yeah, right. The artist uh -huh. is obviously yeah. an exceptionally talented creator. The problem <laughs> is with the publisher. I created the poll as a way to poke fun at the cover art because it is a poor representation of characters within the book, characters I'm deeply passionate about. It's impossible not to be emotional about such things, when I've spent the past 30 years of my life devoted to their every nuance. In no way do I feel the quality of the art is rendered poorly, he continued. For any misunderstanding, I apologize to the artist, his friends, and of course, my own community here. Oh! his own skin. He claims that his publisher, Tor Books, commissioned the artwork and sent it to Goodkind at the last minute and overruled Goodkind's complaints of those of, and those of his team. They said the purpose of the contest was not to insult the artist. Well, when you say it has a very bad cover, you're attacking the artist. Genius. It encourages the publisher to be more thoughtful about cover art in the future. Next time, he should do his own cover art. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And the contest is continuing. He's still continuing the contest, and you still have a chance wow. to get ten free copies of his book. Now, I must admit, I've never read any of his work. I mean, I'm still at, you know, the beginnings of really doing deep dives into some of the fantasy genre. Of course, I'm really digging into Ursula K. McQueen right now, after completing Tolkien and Fortnite and getting into the Narnia series and Terry Pratchett and some others, so... There are a number of authors where it's there. I've you know I've met a number where people are like, eh, this book is good, you know, but they kind of wishy washy on it. No, no, no. Good kind is in the category where there is no middle ground on his stuff. It's either love it or despise it. People are beginning to despise his works more and more, not based on the content, but because of him. Okay. <laughs> so, Mr. Goodkind, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, but people think you're an asshole, and based upon what we've seen now on your social media, I'm inclined to agree with them. Yeah. yeah I, I have read some of his stuff, and there's a lot of fat that can be trimmed. <laughs> and this is coming from a guy who wrote a animal killer. <laughs> <laughs> If I say there's fat to be trimmed, sir, start trimming the fat. Yes. <laughs> uh, what have you? How much of his work have you read, Paul? Three or four of his books. Wizard's mm-hmm. First Rule, I think, is the main one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one that comes to my mind. I can't see that angle of my shelves. That's the only one that sticks into my head. So that does tell you something. Rod, have you read any of his work? I have. I have not read uh, either... But after this whole thing, I'm really not inclined to. So as a publicity stunt to drive sales, it didn't work. No, in fact, it probably is going to hurt his sales more than anything. It's not exactly toe deaf. It's just bad. Yeah. And there are some books with some horrible covers out there. I don't believe this is that exceptionally bad. In terms of cover art, it's I like it personally. I think it's fairly decent cover art. Especially for, you know, a fantasy genre. It's fine there. Personally, I have some qualms about the composition of the cover, but, like, (laughs) in terms of technical skill and rendering, it's awesome. And, obviously, the artist paid a lot of attention to the details of the characters, so for Terry Goodkind to say the characters look wrong, you know, if the author himself, you know, wrote the description of the characters, you know, that's on the author. Yeah. When you consider, like, Rana, you created this beautiful cover art for the World of Magi, knowing that you have no description of the main character that you could have worked on, worked with, so... For him, him to be upset about the rendering of his characters when he seems to be pretty descriptive of them... He is. <laughs> and I have seen no response from poor books, by the way. No response from the publisher. They don't care. <laughs> They've already slapped Terry on the wrist. Uh-huh. They've already compensated the artist. Because, I mean, ultimately right now, Tor Books, they got this artist from Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Which is underneath Hasbro. Right. So, Tor Books, you know, they're big. They're not Hasbro big. <laughs> and this artist... Being that his main art is Magic the Gathering cards, he's making a ton of money anyway. Yeah. Based on my interactions with Magic the Gathering card artists, like, it's 
it's market value, but it's still freelance work. It's not in comparison to what he'd be getting. There, but he'll definitely see some increased, you know, print sales and all that jazz. Exactly. I can imagine he's probably doing well out of this. I, I imagine there's a lot of, you know, support the artist going on right now and people searching out his work or you know, maybe go or something. I don't but yeah, he, he's doing great out of this because he did nothing wrong. No. He did as he was paid to do. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's also, again, everyone has to remember, Terry isn't paying this guy. No. It's Tor that's paying him. So, you know, he's going to listen to Tor more than he's going to listen to anybody else. So, and it's, I mean, Ryan, you and I have fairly good correspondence, and we had a great correspondence when you were coming up with the cover art. But I can't imagine what Terry and this guy's correspondence would have been. Knowing those big publishers, they probably would have had, you know, if you have any questions for the author or for the artist, you have to send them through us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, well, now we've got to look at just, uh, you know, just poorly done work by the publisher. Obviously, Terry is alleging that he was not given enough time to, for the work to be completed and for him to review it and get changes made. The artist has said nothing to disagree with that, but nothing to agree with either. I mean, the artist may have felt that he had had plenty of time. Right. And, of course, the publisher is saying nothing. Now, I can understand uh, if he wanted to make the case that that this isn't the cover art I wanted, but the artist did a good job anyway, okay, but that's not what he said. He right. attacked the art. Uh-huh. He only attacked the process after he got negative feedback. And after the book came out. Yes. Uh, this, I mean, this is just coming out all bad. I mean, the only the the artist is the one coming out good on this. The author looks like looks like crap, and the publisher looks like crap. So, I'm sure there's some good kind fanatic who's out there trying to do a freedom of information act on tour, being like, we want to see these agreements, we want to see the correspondence between all this, we want to see and get to the root of this, and blah blah blah. There's someone that you know. There's someone doing. Oh yeah, and, and I've been staying away from Good Times Facebook page just because I don't want to. Because I know there's always somebody outside the normal realm of response. Like so, you know, somebody that's probably saying this artist should be fortunate that they got to work with the great Terry Good Times. <laughs> I think we covered that yeah, that that enough. So now we've been ignoring Barat here, and <laughs> so let's move on to discussion. But first, we need to take a moment. A message from our sponsor. We have sponsors! We're so official! (laughs) Yay! For you, the listeners of the Publishing Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I've been an Audible listener off and on over the years and have listened to some great uh, autobiography audiobooks such as... uh, Paddle Young Canoe by Nick Offerman, or Choose Your Own Autobiography by Neil Patrick Harris, or Yes Please by Amy Poehler. And then, of course, I've had some other really fantastically done audiobooks I've listened to, like Max Brooks' World War Z, in which it was a full cast recording of that audiobook. And just some really incredible stuff that's available on Audible. Paul, Rana, have you guys been... I don't know if you're Audible listeners, or... 
I was a Audible subscriber for a long time. Um, just finances hit me. I personally love the Audible membership ability. $15 a month, you get one credit, which allows you to get any book. If you have a membership, all your books are discounted. So it's highly, highly affordable. I listen to the great courses through Audible. I've listened to the majority of the Wheel of Time books through Audible, most of which go for, you know, $55, $60, you know, as a straight audio file. But I got one a month for $15. And then they do mm-hmm. credit deals where you can get three credits for 30 bucks, three credits for $33. So even there, it's mm-hmm. been better. And I, I also have like all the Harry Potter books. I personally love Audible. I think it's a fantastic service. One great thing is once you get an audiobook through Audible, it's yours to keep. Even if you let your membership lapse, you can still have those audiobooks and you can go back to listen to. So that's one thing that's really great about an Audible membership. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash AS21. That's audibletrial.com slash AOIS21. And get your free audiobook today. And we thank you, thank Audible for supporting the Publish Me podcast and the rest of the podcast at the AS21 Podcast Network. So now, here we are in chapter 36 of the Publish Me podcast. We're moving into our discussion of world building and welcome our guest, Bharat Krishnan, author of the forthcoming fantasy book Oasis. Woo! Welcome, Bharat. Thank, thank you, so you for joining us. So tell us a bit about your background. So I. I'm currently in an MBA program at, at Louisiana State University. I worked in politics for a very long time. I worked in politics for about 10 years and was a professional campaign manager jumping around and decided when, when I was done with, with that phase of my life that I would write a political memoir, just just a retelling of how politics works at the local level decided I, I really enjoyed doing that. I, I always knew I wanted to be an author, and so I had a lot of fun doing that and, and decided to just keep writing after it. Ever, actually, ever since I read The Outsiders in fifth grade by S.E. Hinton, I knew I, I wanted to pursue writing, not maybe as a career full-time, but certainly as a hobby, and so confessions, writing confessions was a way for me to kind of break into it. And so once I accomplished that and I, I self-published through Amazon, I kind of saw that the process was, was a little less intimidating than thought. And so I just decided to keep writing. So what I'm interested in, you know, you and Paul have very different backgrounds, but both have been drawn now to the fantasy genre. So I just wanted kind of to see how your different backgrounds kind of went into the world building that you're creating with your fan, your fantasy stories. Now, Paul, your fantasy world is based on, obviously, it's a magical world. It's mm-hmm. sort of kind of medieval background. Yeah, so, I mean, my world initially, the imperial system that that the readers interact with in the first book is very traditional... Roman-esque, medieval European-esque, which is very much a strong foundation since, you know, 90% of everything I've read is based upon that. But there are other things I do have there that most readers probably won't pick up on that are very much out of 
other cultures. Um, I do have a few minor things coming up in the second Magi book that will be much more reminiscent of Chinese dynastic culture and Latin American, South American, Aztec, Mayan imperial cultures. So in other words, your first book is a bit more Eurocentric, but you're going a bit more diverse with the future. Yeah. So how about you, Barad? How, what? Right. So that's, that, that's something that's so important, I think, is how our individual backgrounds inevitably come up shaping the worlds we create in ways that certainly I don't even comprehend at first. And I started writing Oasis right after the 2016 elections. And it it was an idea that just kind of came to me. I I really wanted to create this multi-ethnic world uh, because of current political trends. I've always been a casual fantasy reader. You know, I I still have not actually read the Game of Thrones novels. Uh, I, I watch the show. I haven't read the novels. But the idea of magic i've i've always been a huge final fantasy fan and that kind of blending of magic and technology i i was drawn to this idea that a world has to include magic right because clearly everyone's lost their minds we elected trump we're gonna need something supernatural uh to to save us (laughs) at this point um and so i i kind of thought about okay well i looked at different cultures and was really i i wanted to include you know celestial figures in in my writing and so i i looked at you know, mythology between different cultures. And you can see Native American influences. You can see kind of Asian, of course, South Asian influences. You can see uh, Zoroastrian influences in Oasis. Uh, And that kind of multicultural influence has to go to all elements of the world, right? So, So Oasis is set in the desert. And so, okay, so what kinds of interesting creatures do you have in a desert and for for me the the desert was was very much a large part of oasis and kind of the interesting creatures within a desert i wanted to create a world where the the desert's called the nine desert and and it's called that because there are nine distinct creatures uh within the desert that that all have mythological influences that span cultures within them and they and then of course kind of going off what paul said their easter eggs you know put in there for instance you know one one of the main characters he has a bow and and the bow is called ekalavia the bow has a name and ekalavia is a famous archer within the the mahabharata famous hindu poem world building in a fantasy genre like i totally get is a really difficult thing and you know there's always that writing advice write what you know and so you bring in all of your cultural societal knowledge that you already have and try to sort of apply it to this brand new world that has a slightly different history slightly slightly different culture like how do you know when to stop basically writing what you know and sort of let the cultures and the characters that you're creating sort of be their own entity I, I think it comes down to clearly defined roles, right? Like you, you often see 
people write maybe two pages on a setting. Of course, you know, to, to get out of fantasy, there's, there's Hemingway, but even within fantasy, people spend way too much time on exposition, right? And something I kind of learned just browsing Reddit and, and reading other people's work was I really wanted to make sure every single word in my novel was justified, you know, especially in the fantasy genre. You see, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred page novels. And I, I knew I, I wanted to make sure I avoided that. And so one way I did that was was clearly defined roles. OK, character A, you know, is related to character B this way and because they're defined in such a structured way they're they're gonna have thoughts you know of course on other social dynamics but for the purpose of the novel they're structured this specific way and so it's best to avoid you know character a having musings on character d when you know they really don't interact with character d at all personally i would say one of the things I like doing is I, I created a character info sheet for all my characters. Anyone who I interact with, I have a character sheet for. Now, not every character sheet is fully developed. I only know the mother's maiden name for Guard 4. But when you're developing these world settings, at least in my experience... We do take all that information that you've been talking about, you know, all that background information in, but I like to apply it to these characters, and then I put myself in that character's shoes, be like, okay, this is what I'm thinking, like, this character, this is my character, who they are, what they're thinking, what their fears are, so now I have this as my setting, this is my world, how will my character feel about them because you know if i want to have say a dragon in my story a lot of fantasy stories have dragons how is my character going to feel towards the dragons some cultures might worship them some might want to kill them and then you'll have sub factors within each one so that's you know one thing i like to think on i do that as well kind of structuring out those those character sheets it's also just good at pointing out flaws in your manuscript what about uh, historical, cultural sort of characters? If you think of a culture as sort of a character, I'm going to bring up a movie right now. I'm going outside of books. So there was a movie on Netflix called Bright, right? <laughs> Sorry. I was just thinking about that myself. Yeah. Yep. So I'm going to be quoting a lot of YouTube creators uh, named Lindsay Ellis's video essay on Bright. But basically, the biggest problem with that movie was the world building because... It was sort of like bridge magnet history. People were referencing things that we, like regular humans, are totally familiar with, but also trying to like shoehorn in fantasy elements in at the same time. And there was like a huge clash and nothing really made sense. Like, for example, the fact that Los Angeles, the city, is a thing in the world of Bright means that a Franciscan saint, you know, sailed to the New World and established a culture, which means that the... Roman Emperor Constantine was able to establish Christianity as the world religion, and how does Christianity interact with all these magical creatures? And ah, it was like incredibly confusing. <laughs> like, how how do you know like what elements, how much history do you create for that world 
that you don't even talk about, but that influences the current world that your that your their characters are in. I'll quickly add my thought because I, I had two, so I'll, I'll very quickly mention them. So mm-hmm. the one thing I wanted to say right about you mentioning Christianity there is that in the movie Bright, they specifically said that the Dark Lord rose two thousand years ago roughly you know around the time of christ being born so they had this massive battle of fantasy races while christ was going about his journey so they did have that particular issue which was entertaining for me and to answer your question personally i never stop world building if i write a hundred pages of world building notes I might only use a paragraph of that that the readers will know about. But I, as the author, in my opinion, I need to know all that stuff. I need to know my world down to every single piece of sand. That's how I view my world building. Because if I can't think of something, but one of my readers might, it might throw off that story. You know, it's like, but your character went this route, but you clear that there's this other route that would have taken a third less time. Why wouldn't they have known that? Because they don't, you know, they travel that way several times. Why wouldn't they have gone that way? You don't have anything about that. So I, as the author, need to have access to like the world in total. So my approach is, I think, a bit different. Certainly with Oasis, and and I think just how I approach storytelling in general is, I will have a plot. I'll have a really well-defined plot in my head. And then I just kind of have to work backwards to say, okay, for Oasis, for instance, this plot would be unrealistic in a jungle. It's going to work best facilitated in a desert. And then say, okay, so what does that mean? Your your setting is going to determine your society. And the society, once you have a handle on that, determines the story in my mind and so okay well if this is going to take place in a desert then society has to be set up a certain way and the power dynamic here comes into the scarcity of water as a resource and so okay what does that mean in terms of these are the jobs that are going to be most valued in this society these are the animals that are going to be in the desert you know you're you're going to have random towns overridden by bandits because it's desert and so i kind of work with there and and at this point you know i've played like i said enough final fantasy i've i've read enough books i've traveled across four continents and so i i have an idea of what i think a world with a desert looks like in my mind thinking about okay what what grows there how are people going to survive and how does that power dynamic of, of survival and amassing of resources determine and impact the plot? And so I, I kind of have to uh, use those finished concepts to, to deconstruct the world and figure out, okay, how do we tie this all in a way that, that makes sense, that, that's coherent? Brad, who are your primary influences that guided you when you decided to take on this project? I'm really getting into... Publishing as, you know, obviously this podcast is all about self-published. And uh, I, I talk to people outside of the writing industry about this. And, and I really do think self-published is the way of the future. I think 
publishing industry has has really taken a serious hit in in ways that it'll it'll be interesting to see how the the big five and and other publishers uh, adapt to this. You know, we mentioned Barnes and Noble. You know, I I don't know if Barnes and Noble is going to exist a year from now, honestly. Yeah, and so. All of this is to say my influences, I, I really love recently Alex Hudson with The Crimson Queen and then uh, Evan Winter with The Rage of Dragons are just two examples of recently wildly successful self-published novels. As far as traditional goes, like I said, I've read Tolkien and it's the Lord of the Rings trilogy is probably my one of my favorite epic movies but i i haven't read game of thrones as as far as tolkien goes i i think he can he can be a bit wordy and so i'm i'm over here trying to find my own modern inspirations and twitter has been really good for this you know fonda lee's jade city trilogy now is something i i think is really smart roshni chakshi is coming out soon with um, Arusha and the End of Time, which which delves very heavily on Vedic uh, mythology. And so I'm really trying at this point to find mentors, to find inspiration from multicultural authors. Not to denigrate Western influences, but I think society as a whole is delving towards wanting more of that multicultural influence. And, and certainly me... Stan Lee famously said, I just wrote stuff that I knew I would be interested in and, and created characters that I knew I found fascinating. I think that's how you create the best art is, is just think of things that you like and kind of the culture will form around it. A readership will form around it if it's if it's good. Well, earlier uh, you played Final Fantasy. Do you use video games as inspiration as well? You can create such a more dynamic world in the course of, you know, an 80-hour Japanese RPG or, you know, action RPG, as opposed to, you know, the, the constraints of a movie that is two hours or a book that's going to take you, you know, six, seven hours to read. And this is something where the amount of world building it's really easy to spot bad world building in a video game, right? Because right. you you have this entire world that, that you can run around and you can come across a setting that is clearly not as well defined as opposed to a movie or a book. You can kind of gloss over that. I don't know what Paul thinks about that. That was my opinion. Uh, I don't really have much to add for that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something something I loved so much to, to take us a little out of fantasy is the Condemned video game series. Condemned was the first video game I bought as soon as the Xbox 360 came out. And it's such a dynamic world where they really introduced concept of, you know, it's it's a horror survival game. And so there might be a two by four you know, strapped somewhere, or there might be, you know, a light fixture in, in this room that's really not well lit, and you can just kind of rip off the light fixture and use it as a weapon, but that's going to impact your world, right? Because you ripped off that light fixture, you can't see your surroundings anymore, and so what implications does that have for you as a character when these, you know, drug addicts are running up to, you know, kill you? 
you know, right now I'm really into Rainbow Six Siege. As as a first person shooter, I play a lot of it on Xbox Live. And it's again this the scenario where you're in two teams of five and you have an objective, maybe to save a hostage. And the environment is completely interactive. You know, you, you can shoot through walls. You can, well, shooting through walls is the major thing there. Uh, you can blow up walls, whatever. Barat, have you considered writing stories for video games? Have you considered creating a video game? You know, I, I kind of have. There is, um, I'll give a shout out to this video game. I'm trying to find funding right now that brings up action-adventure elements. But, yeah, I, I think the world is, is kind of going towards this, this multicultural mindset, especially now with, with you know, like I said, the, the age of Trump. And, I yeah, to, to answer your question, yeah, I've actually been talking to a friend of mine who's pretty high up as he's a programmer working at a major company about the idea because i think it'd be really cool to you know you have prince of persia for instance had such success as as kind of tackling that multicultural world and now it's just getting bigger and bigger and so i think kind of taking in um you know that that ancient world but bringing it to a current trend and that's one of the reasons why i wrote oasis right is you have you, you always kind of think of magic as this ancient thing, urban fantasy aside. And so bringing in that element of technology is a way of saying, okay, we have magic, you know, we know it's ancient, but we, we also have technology, which is, which is very current and kind of a way to balance those two worlds together. And so I think creating some kind of video game where again you have that balance and that's kind of what final fantasy is if you think about it there would be a market of of that my i mean my my ideal video game would probably be final fantasy but you know you bring in mythological gods from the east instead of you know more western influences again i i love western society i love america but we weren't questioning that don't worry about it. <laughs> if trump's nsa is listening i love america <laughs> fun fact uh there is such a thing as a video game lore keeper there is a guy who works at bethesda zenimax whose entire job is to keep track of all the lore of the fallout series so that is a job that you can have if you try hard enough yes. well i heard when they were launching the star trek discovery they actually hired people who were longtime star trek fans to be the keepers of the canon that's that's way to do it and of course some people were questioning whether or not those people actually did their job once discovery finally came out but <laughs> I, that was still incredible that because that, that was something that when they did Enterprise. Yeah, 15 years earlier, there was a lot of canonical issues that came up, <laughs> and it was clear that they uh, didn't follow up too well. I remembered the name of this game I was talking about, trying to find funding. I'm going to send the link to you guys, but it's called Raji, and it is an ancient epic. It's an action-adventure game set in ancient India, 
Raji, a young girl, is chosen by the gods to stand against the demonic invasion of the human realm, her destiny to rescue her younger brother and face the demon lord, Mahabalasura. This kind of builds upon the fact that Bollywood, one of their, I think probably the most successful movie right now, is this two-part epic movie came out over the course of the last few years called Bahubali, and it was a big hit. The CGI is god-awful, but the, the storytelling is quite good, I thought. It gets back to this saying within like Indian art culture called Me Too, that stands for mythological epics told over and over. It basically saying Indian culture has two great epics to offer us in terms of storytelling, the, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, and kind of all stories are versions of those two. But I think it's something that would be wildly successful brought over to, to America and, and the West at large. I mean, I, I remember years ago, I was explaining Game of Thrones to my mom, and she was like, oh, so this is, this is the Mahabharata. All right, well, we'll add that to the show notes as well. So, All right, we're running out of time here, so uh, any final thoughts or any final questions for Barat before we let him go? I'm good. This was, this was great. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Well, thank you all so much. I just, <laughs> I just kind of wanted to leave with, which is kind of a pitch for for Oasis, if if that's yeah. okay. Oh, please go um, ba- Basically, you know, I society drives story, right? And and society is defined by boundaries. You know, you've got the, you know, it, it kind of balances each other out. You know, North Korea's leadership is insane, but they're they're weak uh, structurally. For years, you know, America was the world's only superpower, but, you know, we were, we were reasonably responsible. And so what, what happens if those old rules are just gone? That's kind of what I wanted to explore with Oasis, where you, you had two societies, one reliant on magic and one reliant on technology. And what happens if magic disappears and, and kind of that power dynamic changes fundamentally? And, and you end up in a culture where, you know, you kind of have the technological culture coming to a place kind of like the capital in the Hunger Games. What, what implications does that have? How do they take over, you know, this culture where, where magic is, is no longer existent and you're, you're kind of dealing with, with a society in decay? That was kind of what I was going with Oasis. The current draft is about 500 pages. It's it's cut into four parts of, of a story. And the story is fundamentally that twist, but told through an enduring friendship between two people who, who kind of come at that culture from two separate angles and are best friends. I look forward to checking it out. All right. Thank you very much, Baran. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. This has been Chapter 36 of the Publishing Podcast, World Building, with guest Bharat Krishnan. We'll be back next month as we continue our discussion on digital publishing. Welcoming back uh, AS21 editor Corey Parker, and he'll be discussing the current state of the digital publishing industry from his experience working full-time at a scientific journal in the D.C. area, as well as we'll have updates on the editing process of the Will of the Magi. Uh, Paul, Rana, anything else you guys got going up and coming up in the month of March? Not at the moment, sadly. 
March is going to be a little bit insane for me. I'm going to be a conference associate at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, California. I'm super excited for that. But, you know, it's going to be like a whole week of like travel and meeting new people, staying at a hostel. It's going to be like a convention, but much, much bigger. So I'm like setting myself up for that. I have part one of my board game art due in March as well. So I'm working on that. I'm about to go work on that right after this podcast is over. And at the very end of March, I will be tabling at AwesomeCon, which is a fan in DC. It's going to be pretty dang amazing. I'm excited for that. So I could have to like get my button gear and like get more stuff printed and Ah, my to-do list is never ending, but I'm excited. All right, I'll have another reason to go to AwesomeCon. Okay. <laughs> I will be tabling with my lovely friend, Kathleen Brenowitz, who is a comic artist in the D.C. area. She specializes in a bit more uh, sci-fi, space-western type of art. We sort of complement each other a little bit because she does a lot of uh, ink and gouache work as well. So her art is really, really beautiful as well. So check us both out at AwesomeCon, March 30th through April 1st in the D.C. area. That's Easter weekend as well, so yeah. <laughs> Alright, uh, and of course we'll have a poetry open mic at Walls of Books on the third Friday of the month in downtown D.C., so come on out for that. And then that first weekend in April, the weekend after April, we'll say, the, when this episode of the next edition will drop, we'll be at the Possibilities Conference in Falls Church, Virginia. It's a new book conference put on by our friends at the Possibilities Publishing Company. It's a full-day conference starting with a pancake breakfast, but we'll be one of seven or eight exhibitors, but we'll have a real chance to just sit down and talk with prospective authors and sharing our own stories and things for the publishing industry with several panel discussions being put on, and that will be April 7th. In Falls Church, Virginia, at the Possibilities Conference. You can find out more at possibilitiesconference.com as well as events.as21.com. So, that wraps us up, and remember you can catch this podcast on Podomatic, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn, and our home of the web, audio.as21.com. If you want to reach out to us, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash publishpodcasts, on Twitter at publishpodcasts. And you can email us, publishpodcast at as21.com. Thank you again to Rod for joining us today. I am S21 Publisher, Keith F. Shelton. I am Rod Gaynor, Design Consultant for AS21. And as always, this is Paul Dickinson Russell. Remember, where there are thoughts and ideas, there are stories. We'll see you next month. Copyright 2018, AS21 Media, LLC. All rights reserved. AS21 Media. What do you want your story to be?